Well, hey, everybody. Uh, let me wel welcome you to our worship today. Uh, once again, we are one church in 10,000 locations, you know, as we take part in these online services during these days of social distancing. And man, we're so glad that you could be a part of this. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to us getting back together. Man, I love you. I miss you. I miss our being together. And I look forward to that day, uh, you know, when we can get back together. And what, you know, most of us are thinking about right now is kind of the new normal. Uh, you know, we had a little family meeting last Monday night to talk about, you know, the values are going to help us decide when we're going to all get back together publicly. Uh, and if you missed that meeting, I would encourage you to go to our website and check it out. Uh, it's not very long, but I hope you will watch it. And I hope you pray for us as we make plans about how to get through the next few stages of social distancing and all that. Now, friends, our decision to resume public worship services is not going to be made for us by the government. And it's not going to be made by those who are yelling the loudest. It's going to be made by prayer and fasting and guidance from above and values that we believe will honor our testimony and the safety of the weakest people among us. So here's what I want to ask you to pray for. First of all, pray for wisdom. Man, James, uh, the brother of Jesus said that when you need wisdom, you ask of the Lord and he will send wisdom generously and without reproach. And man, that's what we need. We need to be able to see over the hill and God can help us do that. And so please pray that our leaders will have wisdom. And also, I want to encourage you to pray that our church will continue to thrive and just flourish you know, through this time of hardship. Now, I mentioned in our family meeting that, you know, we don't need to reopen our church because, man, our church never closed. Uh, I got a great message uh, a week or so ago from a Christian, a compassionate Christian nurse who serves uh, in a hospital, local hospital, that reminded me, you know, of how much ministry is going on through compassion, you know, all the time. Let me just read you what she wrote. Uh, Pastor Cam, I'm not sure if you remember me. And then she gave us her name. And, you know, she told me about the volunteer role she had volunteered for and was training for literally the week before COVID-19 hit. And now we're online ever since. But she said, I just wanted to take a minute and say thank you. Uh, I'm a civilian nurse out of Fort Stewart. Uh, I received a phone call from a friend at church this past week who said Compassion Christian is donating cookies to workers at Winter Army Hospital. And I was able to help distribute those cookies throughout the hospital, uh, throughout the troop medical clinics that stayed open through this whole pandemic. She said the looks of gratitude on everybody's face is something I'll remember for the rest of my life. She said, I was able to bless even the cleaning crews with cookies as well. And one of the sweet ladies who served on the cleaning crew, you know, read that message that said, you know, if you want prayer, just dial this number or text this number. And she said, man, I really do need prayer. Do you think they would pray for me? And I told her, yes, ma'am, they would. She said, all I got to do is call this number and they'll pray for me. She said, yeah, call it right now. And she said that lady took her phone out, dialed that number. She got a prayer and our friend said she walked away with tears in her eyes. Now, friends, she wrote, in that moment, I felt God move. Through the ministry of our church, God used me to bring joy to these healthcare workers and essential personnel. And in return, I received joy as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for remembering us. Thank you for caring. Thank you for being a light in the darkness. Thank you for being compassion. God bless you all. Now, friends, I'm telling you, that's what happens, you know, when we are one church in many locations that's unified in our mission to lead people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus and then make a difference in the name of Jesus. Now, friends, there has never been a time when that kind of unity and intentionality was more important than it is right now in our country today. Now, we're in part three of a three-part series that we're calling The Separation of Church and Hate. And man, we've been exploring how the church, you know, when it works right, 
is kind of an antidote for the anger and division that we see in play in our nation's politics today. Now, friends, I think that followers of Jesus, you know, when we got our head on right, dude, we are like medicine to a culture that is running a dangerously high fever. Now, over the last two weeks, uh, we've talked about the healing power of civility. You know, when you are quick to listen and slow to speak and then slow to anger. Man, we talked about how different that kind of loving response is to the vitriolic kind of label and disabled culture that we live in today. We've also talked about the healing power of the humility of Jesus, you know, that causes us to think less of ourselves and, and then to treat other people as if they're more important than we are. Now, friends, they're not more important than we are. But if we treat them that way, the way Jesus did, I'm telling you, man, it changes things. So today we're going to talk about what would happen if followers of Jesus could upgrade the unity of our church in the midst of a culture that is deeply and angrily divided. Now, friends, I keep on saying, you know, when the church is working right, uh, because I'm telling you, prejudice and pride and hostility, they're all a part of our sinful flesh. And I wish I could say that never bleeds over into church. But dude, you've got to know better than that. Now, my friend Max Locato told a story that helped me understand how this crazy division can seep into the church. And here's the way the story goes. God enlisted us into his Navy and he placed us on his ship. And that ship has only one purpose, and that is to carry humanity safely to the other shore. Now, <clears throat> it's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And we aren't called to a life of leisure, we're called to a life of service. And every one of us has our own different task. Man, some people are super concerned about those who are drowning, and so they're snatching people out of the water. Others are occupied with the enemy, so you know, they man the cannons of prayer and worship. You know, others devote themselves to keeping the crew fed and healthy. And so they're constantly feeding and training all the crew members. And even though we're different, we're all the same. Man, each of us can tell our own story of our personal encounter with the captain because each one of us has received our own call. Man, he found us in the sinful shanties of the seaport and he invited us to come and follow him. And our faith was born when we recognized the power of his affection and so we joined up. Man, we followed him across the gangplank of his grace and we're all on the same boat now. There's one captain, one destination. And even though the battle is fierce, our boat is safe because our captain is God. This ship will not sink. For that, there is no concern. Unfortunately, there is concern regarding the disharmony of the crew. Now, when we first boarded, we assumed the crew was made up of other people just like us. But as we've wandered these decks, we have encountered curious converts with curious appearances. I mean, some wear uniforms we've never seen before. Do they sport in styles we've never witnessed? And we look at them and we think, why do you dress that way? And they laugh and say, funny, I was about to ask you the same thing. But the variety of dress is not nearly as disturbing as the plethora of opinions. There's one group, for example, who clusters every morning for serious study. Man, they promote rigid discipline, somber expressions. Boy, serving the captain is serious business, they explain. And it is no coincidence that that group gathers uh, typically at the stern of the boat. There's another regiment deeply devoted to prayer. And man, not only do they believe in prayer, do they believe you should kneel when you pray. And for that reason, you always know where to locate them. They're up at the bow of the boat. And then there are a few who staunchly believe that when we take communion, we should use real wine. And you can always find them on the port side of the boat. 
And still another group has kind of positioned themselves down in the engine because they love the nuts and bolts. They love figuring out how everything works. Dude, they've been known to go down below and stay there for days, not come up for days. They are occasionally criticized by people who love to linger on the top deck. They love to feel the wind in their hair, the sun on their face. Those on the top side would argue, you know, it's not how much you learn, it's how you feel that really matters. And every one of those groups loves to cluster. You know, some think that once you're on that boat, you can't ever get off. Others think you'd be foolish to go overboard, but the choice is yours. Some people believe that you volunteer for service on this ship. Others believe that you were predestined for service before the ship was even built. Some predict that there'll be a great tribulation that will strike the dock, strike before we dock. Others think, hey, it won't hit until we're safe on shore. There are those who speak to the captain in their own personal language. And there are the other folks who believe those languages don't even exist. Some groups feel like, you know, the officers should all wear robes. And then there are other groups who feel like there are no officers. And then there's another group who feels like we're all officers and we should all wear robes. And every one of these groups just clusters. And then there's the issue of the weekly meeting, you know, where the captain is thanked for how good he's been to us. And, and we read his word and everybody agrees that it's important, but very few agree on how to do it. Some want it loud. Some want it quiet. Some want ritual. Some want spontaneity. Some want to celebrate so they can meditate. Others want to meditate so they can celebrate. Some want a meeting that's geared to people who are going overboard. Uh, others want to reach those who are overboard, but they don't want to go overboard and neglect those who are already on board. And boy, all of these groups love to cluster. And the consequence is a rocky boat. There's trouble on deck. Fights have broken out. Harsh things have been said. Some sailors won't even speak to each other. There have been times when one group refused to even acknowledge the presence of anybody else on the ship. But most tragically, those who are still adrift at sea sometimes choose not even to board the boat because of the quarreling they hear about in the boat. Now, what do we do about this? We'd love to ask the captain, don't you think there should be harmony and unity on your ship? And friends, let me tell you, you don't have to go very far to find the answer to that question. Because on the night that Jesus died, he prayed that his father would help us figure out an answer to the problem of division in the church. And it was a prayer for unity and it's found right here in John chapter 17. So man, if you've got your Bible, open it to John 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have it, I'm gonna throw it up on the screen, but I really hope you'll get this and mark it because friends, this is one of the most important prayers Jesus ever prayed because he was praying for you, literally praying for you. And we're gonna study this prayer. And if we take this to heart, this is a prayer that could change our church, our community, our nation, and our world if we will allow ourselves to be the answer to the prayer of Jesus. Now, before we unpack his prayer, let me just ask you this question. Why do you think unity is so hard to achieve? I mean, if unity is hard to achieve in the church, I mean, you know, where we're all saved by grace and we all have the same Lord and we all study the same Bible and we all have strength from the same Holy Spirit. And man, we're all commanded to love each other. Man, if unity is hard for us, then you don't have to wonder why it seems impossible to have unity out in the culture, especially during an election season. Now, one of the main causes for division in our culture is what sociologists call the fundamental attribution error. 
Now, this phrase was coined by Dr. Lee Ross, who's a psychologist at Stanford University, and it refers to a cognitive bias that attributes people's behavior to their character rather than their circumstances. Now, think about this. Think about what this means. Uh, let's say Alice is driving and she gets cut off in traffic by Bob. What does Alice just naturally assume about Bob? Now, she might make a fundamental attribution error and judge his character by his behavior. She might say, that joker cut me off because he's a jerk. He is a selfish, thoughtless jerk who doesn't know how to drive. People who cut you off like that, they're just thinking about themselves because they're jerks. She doesn't know all that about Bob. <laughs> she doesn't even know Bob. That's a cognitive bias that she has. She's prejudiced in the way she thinks. Consequently, she is judging his character based on a very limited understanding of what she's seen of this guy, the fact that he cut her off in traffic. Now, if she was more mature and if she was more patient, more spiritual, more loving, she might think, well, maybe it's not his character. Maybe it's his circumstances. Maybe that joker is driving like that because he's in a jam. Man, maybe his daughter's having a convulsion and he's got to get to school. Or maybe his wife's having a baby. He's got to get to the hospital. Or maybe he's late for his flight. And listen, that kind of gracious attitude rather than judgment would humanize Bob a little bit and make it easier for her to be kinder to him and maybe easier for her to give him a break. Now, it wouldn't excuse the fact that he cut her off. It wouldn't make that right. But listen, choosing to think the best rather than the worst would at least you know, keep her from blowing up with anger and maybe make her a little more understanding and a little more Christ-like. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Cam, that ain't real. Oh yeah, yes it is. And it's possible because you do this for yourself all the time, right? I mean, when you cut somebody off in traffic, you don't immediately judge yourself and say, well, I guess I'm just a jerk. I'm just a thoughtless, selfish jerk who doesn't know how to drive. You don't do that. No, no, you're quick to explain your behavior by circumstances. I had to make that cut because I'm late for a job interview and I need this job to feed my family. Or I got to pick my kid up from school. They're sick. Or, you know, I'm so thoughtful and I'm so responsible. I had to cut in front of you so I could take care of all these other responsibilities. Man, the reason I cut you off is because I'm so responsible. Now, if you're thinking right now, Cam, what in the world does this have to do with the separation of church and hate? Have you ever heard anybody say, all Democrats are corrupt? They act the way they do because they're corrupt. All Republicans are heartless. They don't give a rip. They act the way they, they do because they don't care because they're all heartless. All Democrats are socialists. You know they are. All Republicans are racist. They're never going to admit it, but you know they are. I can see their heart. Every stinking one of them. Really? <laughs> really? Friends, this is a classic attributional error. It's based on prejudice. You're prejudging. You're taking you know, one thing that you don't like or one thing that you see, one position, and you're making a judgment on the character of a whole group of people based on a very limited perspective. Listen, you don't actually know what's in the heart of every Republican. You don't know what circumstances cause them to think the way they do today. You don't know what's in the heart of every Democrat or, or the circumstances that led them to think this way or independent or whatever. Now, friends, it is the weakness of our own sinful flesh that enables a follower of Jesus to be pulled into this kind of fundamental attribution error. 
and you don't want to be doing this. I mean, I mean, think about it. Don't you hate it when your spouse or your child or your parent or your friend or somebody labels you, labels you because you didn't do something that they like? And that's not characteristic of you. That's not normal for you. But they're just throwing labels now because they're ticked off. And of course, every time they do that, they lose influence, but they don't care. <clears throat> don't you hate it when somebody makes a universal statement? You never, you always, Man, I'm telling you, universal statements like that, those are relationship killers. I mean, they require you to judge somebody's soul, their motives, something that followers of Jesus are forbidden to do. Now, you want to talk about behavior? Sure, let's talk about it. You want to talk about policies or positions? Sure, dude, let's talk. But the minute you start prejudging and labeling and name-calling whole groups of people based on two or three things that tick you off, you're in danger of surrendering any influence you might have for Christ or any influence you might have for change. And can I just tell you, hang on, y'all. Mature, empathetic, godly, wise people don't do this. They don't fall for that fundamental attributional error. Now, let me tell you, political rhetoric breeds it, but godly people don't fall for it. And I'll tell you, if you listen to more talk radio than you do reading the Bible, you probably will fall for it. <laughs> you probably will. Wise people, though, the Bible says are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to judge because the humility of Christ in them motivates them to treat others better than they deserve. You know, I got a buddy who says it's always easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. <laughs> and he's right, man. I'm, I'm telling you, it's always easier to tell somebody they're wrong than it is to gently guide somebody toward the truth. You know, to gently guide somebody toward doing what's right. And let me tell you, my sinful nature, it's more fun to make a point. I, I love it. It satisfies my ego. Dude, it satisfies my flesh. It's just not very helpful because it's just so much harder to make a difference. So what did Jesus say about unity? This unity that should characterize everybody who follows him in this election season. Let's let him tell us himself. Turn with me to John chapter 17. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed over the dinner table the night he was arrested. And let me tell you, it had been an amazing day. Now, if you know anything about the book of John, you know that most of the book of John is about the last week of Jesus's life. And starting in verse 13, it's all uh, chapter 13. It's all about this one day. And so John 13 literally starts out with the Last Supper and then Jesus washing his disciples' feet, which is a famous story. And then Jesus gives his disciples their marching orders. I mean, dude, this is the prime directive. Uh, this is the mission-critical trait that he says are going to set followers of Christ apart from everybody else. Look what he says in John chapter 13. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. And they're all going, yeah, yeah, we know, got to be nice, everybody. He's like, no. That's not what I'm talking about. You love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Now, friends, these words right here are going to get up in the grill of every follower of Jesus from that day till this. I mean, he's not talking about loving people the way other people love people or love people the way your family always love people or love people more than average. No, he's saying, as I have loved you the way I loved you, self-sacrificing love, putting other people first, you know, serving the undeserving, patient and grace when people disappoint you. That's how I loved you. 
And that's how I want you to love other folks through the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, your love, this is what he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not, not the church you go to, not, not, not necessarily the things you say, but the way you love one another, that will prove to the world that you are my followers, my disciples. Which basically means that if followers of Jesus just look like everybody else, talk like everybody else through this election season, same anger, same vitriol, same judgmental spirit, same hostility, same foolish attributional, uh, attributional errors. Nobody will even know you are a follower of Jesus or care. Friend, the fact that you can hold a different position and still love somebody that you disagree with the way Jesus did. Friends, this is what Jesus says will set his followers apart in this election season. Now, at the end of that dinner, after John 13, Jesus said, God, before we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, I want to pray for you. And then in John 17, he prays and he starts in verse one and just prays all the way through this. It's called his high priestly prayer. It's awesome. But friends, in verse 20, he starts praying for you. I mean, not just the disciples back in the day. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. Look what he says in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe, who will believe in me through their message. Dude, that's us. I mean, that's us 2,000 years later. We are the ones who believe the message that the apostles handed down through the New Testament. But man, look what Jesus prays for. He prays, first of all, for the unity of the church. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. His prayer is that we would be one, united. Jesus is praying that the people who were saved by him will be unified in a relationship with him, with everybody else who has a relationship with him, just as Jesus is unified with the Father and the Father is unified with him. Now, friends, I think sometimes this is really confusing for us. You know, he's not praying for uniformity. You know, uniformity is where everybody looks and talks and thinks exactly the same. Friends, Jesus is not praying for the Stepford Church, you know, where we all just kind of robotically act just alike and do the same thing. No, man. You know, the Bible says that we were made by God different. I mean, we have different gifts and different abilities and different talents and passions and backgrounds and, and all that. All those differences actually make the church better, make it rich. I mean, in the book of Revelation, Jesus celebrates the great diversity of his church in heaven. I mean, Jesus is building a fellowship with all kinds of different people whose differences are not just tolerated. Man, they are celebrated. And I'm telling you, he's the only one on this planet who's ever been able to pull that off in history. But he's not talking about uniformity and neither is he talking about unanimity. Man, he's not saying that in the church, you know, everybody's got to agree and share exactly the same opinion and exactly the same convictions on everything. Listen, we don't all have to be Clemson fans. We don't have to be. You can be, but you don't have to be. Uh, we, don't, we don't all have to like Motown music like I do. Uh, you don't all have to be a Republican. We don't all have to be a Democrat in order to experience unity in the body of Christ. Jesus is not calling for uniformity. He's not calling for unanimity. He's calling for unity that is driven by a common mutual devotion to loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And friends, that means that we put God's word before any political party platform. 
We put honoring Jesus in front of any political inclination. We put unity with God's people over any political distinctions that the devil might use to divide us. Listen, no matter what our culture may do or how crazy this election season may get, Jesus prayed that his followers would not be distracted by any prejudice, any cognitive bias, or do anything that diminishes this essential unity of the body of Christ. Listen, our unity is based on our relationship with God through Jesus, and our allegiance to him should be stronger than any allegiance to a college, team, company, country, party, anything. And then Jesus goes on to pray for the unity of all believers. Look what he says. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them, all of them will be one. Now, friends, think how counterintuitive that was back in the day. I mean, within just a few years, there would be members of the church in the book of Acts that were Jewish and Gentile, worshiping together, brothers and sisters together. Now, the racial tension that we experience in America is like, you know, an annoying breeze compared to the hurricane of racial hate that existed in both directions between the Jewish people and the Gentiles back in Israel in Jesus' day. And yet, just a few years after he ascended into heaven, they found unity in the church. And I mean, not just racial unity, rich and poor and slave and free and military leaders and soldiers and people who've been hurt by the military, tax collectors and people who got, you know, had to pay those taxes and educated people and uneducated, everybody. I mean, think about our day. Unity of all believers means Republicans and Democrats and independents and indecisive and libertarians and librarians and privileged and not so privileged and black and brown and white and beige and married and single. Dude, everybody who calls him Lord, no matter how well life seems to have treated you, no matter how harshly life seems to have treated you, Jesus is praying that all of us will be one this vast array of people and experiences will somehow be one in Christ. And Jesus prays in addition that there will be a spirit of intentionality about that. Not hoping it's going to happen, making it happen. He says, Lord, I pray that all of them may be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What? The unity of the church is going to create the situation where the world will believe that Jesus came from God. Jesus is saying the unity of the church is mission critical to the main thing he came to earth to do, which is to seek and save the lost. Now, friends, if we as followers of Jesus will just refuse to let our party affiliations and our personality differences divide us for the sake of Christ, Jesus says that will draw the attention of the world. And it has. Because I'm telling you, nothing else in the world really does that. Our unity will set us apart in a way that lost people will see and they will be drawn to believe in Jesus because of what they see in us. And friends, the other side of that is, if we do not display this supernatural unity, we'll just blend in. We'll look like everybody else and we'll have no impact at all. Now, let me show you a... a, a video, an encouraging video that my friend Dave Stewart 
shot while we were doing some ministry in India a, a while ago. Uh, I think he shot this video so that you could see the extreme power of my international preaching. Uh, and when we play this, you'll be able to hear me preaching in the background with an interpreter. So take a look at this, y'all. Take a look. No matter who you are, you should remember that every time you come to worship, there are young eyes that are watching you and learning how to follow Christ by watching your example. But the third thing that happens when we come to worship is we give encouragement to others who are here. Because of things that are happening in their lives. Now you've done that before, right? Don't tell me you haven't because, you know, back when we used to meet here, I would see some of you jokers doing that all the time. Now, don't you know that was a healthy sermon for this little lad? How rested and refreshed he must have felt after he passed out in the middle of my sermon. Thank you, Dave, for taping that. But let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit about this little village church. Now, uh, right back over here, right off the screen, is an ex-Hindu folk singer group. And let me tell you, they were a pretty tight little band. I mean, they were awesome. They used to be Hindus, but the truth is the Hindu shrine in their community rejected them. They wouldn't even allow them to worship there because those singers were of the lower caste. And so when they came to this little Christian church, man, they were loved and accepted and welcomed. And because they were, they came to faith in Jesus and they were baptized into Christ. And now that little folk band literally is the worship band of this booming church in a village out in India. Now, uh, I also, uh, you remember the voice of the guy that was doing the translation for me? Uh, that guy works for Dr. Ajay Lal. Now, Ajay is a third generation church planter in India that we've been supporting for a long time. Uh, Ajay's dad and grandfather uh, both uh, love the Lord, serve the Lord in ministry. When Ajay went to college, he told his daddy, I want to do anything except the ministry. I do not want to do the ministry. So he went to law school. And as he was getting ready for the bar exam, his dad called him and said, look, there's a little church in New Delhi. Would you mind preaching there for him on Sunday? That's all you got to do. And Ajay started preaching at this little church while he was passing the law exam. Man, he fell in love with the ministry. God called him into ministry. And as soon as he got his law degree, you know, he, you know, went in the ministry and never practiced law at all. But Ajay is of the Brahmin caste. And, you know, there's a caste system in India and on the bottom, they say it doesn't exist, but it really does. Uh, on the bottom are the untouchables. And, and that's who we're looking at here. And then on the top, the top caste are the Brahmins. They are the educated, the wealthy, the elite folk in, in that country for the most part. Ajay is a Brahmin. His wife, Indu, is a Brahmin. Uh, her daddy was one of the most famous plastic surgeons in India. He was a missionary doctor out in the sticks, man. And the way he funded his whole mission was wealthy people would fly from New Delhi out to Damo, where his, his uh, mission station was, so that they could get plastic surgery from this guy. He was so famous and he funded his whole ministry this way. Now listen, one of the reasons God has blessed this ministry so much is that Ajay and Indu, who are Brahmins, come into this little village of untouchables and the, and the poor and all of that, and they eat with them and they talk to them and they preach to them and teach them and love them and, and put their hands on them and baptize them into Christ. And these people don't even know what to think about that. And I'm telling you, it's this amazing supernatural love and unity that just, it's just blowing their minds. They don't even know how to think about it. Now, let me tell you something else you can't see in this picture. These are all the kids. There's a bunch of men in this church. Every one of them has caught a beating 
from Hindu extremists in that area because they converted to Christianity. Now, none of them were welcome at the Hindu shrines. They were all rejected because they were of such a low standing in the community. But man, they were you know, beat up for going to a church that would love and accept them and make them you know, a part of our family. And friends, I'm telling you, what you also can't see in this picture is right back over here is a very distinguished uh, older Indian man in super expensive white traditional clothing. I was trying to figure out what that guy was doing there and who he was. And I asked Ajay afterwards and they said, well, he's a member of parliament, but this is his home village. And he found Christ here at this little church. And that parliament member is a member of this little tiny church. Now think about that. Rich, poor, educated, simple, men, women, children, all one in Christ. Friends, this is an answer to Jesus's prayer. These Indian folk are being drawn, you know, by the unity of our mission there to believe that God sent Jesus to save them. And friends, I'm telling you, last year, 50,000 Indian people converted to Christ and were baptized into Christ last year. And Jesus says, in part, it's because of the unity of our churches in India and honestly, the unity of our church here in Georgia with the churches in India. And friends, I'm telling you, your generosity is changing the world here. It's changing the world there and answering the prayer of Jesus. Because man, when the church is working right, we are intentional about unity because man, Jesus prayed for a humanly unexplainable unity. I mean, look at verse 22. In verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory, Lord, that you gave me so that they will be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. It's a God thing. It's supernatural. Dude, this is what's so powerful, you know, about what we're doing in a church like this, you know, where people of every race, every education, every economic, every political background can come together and be loved by Jesus and loved by us. Now, friends, you got to know that human nature is to be homogeneous. And homogeneous means, you know, like with like. You just, you know, run to the corner where everybody looks like you, everybody acts like you, everybody dresses like you. Friends, this was not the dream of Jesus for his church. Jesus dreamed of a building, a church that manifested such a supernatural unity among such diverse nationalities and colors and cultures that everybody who came there would feel welcome. And then everybody in the world who saw it would just be mystified. They just wouldn't understand how that is possible. And of course, you know, in this super diverse body of Christ, of course, we're going to see things differently for different reasons. And of course, we're going to vote differently for different reasons. But at the same time, when Jesus's prayer is answered, there's this beautiful, mystical unity that is just unignorable by the world because there's never been anything in the world like it. And friends, this is why we cannot sacrifice our unity over something as temporary as a political opinion. And friends, Jesus finished his prayer by praying for complete life changing unity. Look what he says. He says in verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He wants us to come to complete unity. Surely, 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 man, if you love Jesus, you would not let a temporary political difference diminish the supernatural unity of the church. 
that Jesus died so that it would make an eternal difference. Listen, I have friends in India and Pakistan and other places who catch a beating standing for that unity of the church every day. Our early Christian forefathers lost their lives standing for this supernatural unity, but they reshaped our world because they did. Now, I have a friend named Ben Kacharis who is a pastor up in Maryland and apparently a pretty good fisherman, right? I didn't know that Georgia catfish made it all the way up to Maryland, but anyway, he caught one. He's a pastor of a great church up there and he's got a daughter named Ellie. And Ellie served at our church last summer. She was at camp in the city out of the East Campus and she's a Milligan student and just awesome. This is the face you make when you're sending a picture to your buddy and you get to be with his daughter and he does not. All right, that's how that works. So anyway, he was telling me a story about Ellie. Ellie, on her first day of high school, uh, she comes home and says, well, Dad, I saw my first fight today. And he's like, first fight? Wow, uh, what was it like? And she said, man, it was amazing. I mean, one girl grabbed the other girl's hair and she's pulling her all over the place, giving her the business, man, shoving her up against the lockers. And this big crowd gathered in the hallway and it was kind of exciting and kind of scary and kind of funny all at the same time. And then a teacher came in and broke it all up and dispersed the crowd and grabbed those two girls that were fighting and said, why don't you guys knock this off? And Ellie said the crazy thing about it is they both played on the same sports team and everybody said they were supposed to be friends. Now, sadly, that's not a far cry from what the devil would love to do in the American church during this election season, right? I mean, it's becoming increasingly acceptable you know, to just enter into any kind of angry Facebook rant, you know, divisive diatribe, vitriolic name calling, whatever. You know, we yank the hair, give them the business, you know, uh, and the whole deal. And, and don't you think that Jesus sometimes just would walk into the church and grab us and say, why don't you guys knock this off? I mean, you're on the same team. You're supposed to be friends. Listen, unity is important to Jesus. And let me tell you why. If the only thing you know about my family is we fight all the time and I got this wacky opinionated cousin and I got this uncle who's mean as the devil. And then I say to you, hey, don't you want to come to my family reunion? <laughs> what are you going to say? No, of course not. And friends, when our churches are like that, it defeats the purposes and the prayers of Jesus. Dude, Jesus prayed for the unity of his family. He commanded everybody who loves him to love each other as he loved us. And listen, of all the lessons we can draw from this passage, don't miss the more, most important one. Unity matters to God. Disunity disturbs God. And I'll tell you why. Jesus said by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now friends, unity, in love creates belief. Not that we're always gonna agree on everything because we won't. Not that we're gonna solve every controversy because we won't. Not that we're gonna be unanimous in every vote because we won't be. But if through it all, if we love one another in unity, that unity will be used by God to create belief, which will get people out of the water and onto the ship headed to the other shore. And that's what we're all about. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to be together. Thank you for this opportunity to think about what was important to Jesus. These are some of his last words. Bless us as we take them seriously and as we handle ourselves in such a way that you'll be proud and the world will know that we are your disciples. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. 
as you reflect on Cam's sermon, let me just ask you a couple questions. You see, who is somebody that's close, maybe a close friend that is the most different from you? Different beliefs, different ideas, different socioeconomics. Who is somebody like that that's different from you? And let's think about that. Another question is, is there a time that maybe you've judged somebody who eventually became a good friend. Maybe you had a, a circumstance that you had and you thought this person was one way, but after you got to know them, they were completely different. And your, your perception of who they are changed. Or maybe, can you think of a time where you had to choose Jesus and unity over your personal biases? That Christ came above your personal beliefs about someone or something. As you think about those questions, I wanna invite you into a new opportunity next week to come study Galatians with us. Paul writes these beautiful, eloquent letters to the church in Galatia about what it means to be free in Christ. And honestly, these questions in Cam's sermon is inviting us into freedom, freedom from our own personal biases, freedom from our own personal judgment. You see, as we begin to think and to process about what God has for us, may you just begin to rest in the idea of who God thinks you are and be grateful that he didn't judge you based on what you think and what you've done. Man, let me just invite you again to come join us for our next series on Galatians and hear what it means to have freedom in Christ.